0: Take your Bibles and turn to me to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, if you would please. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 is where I'd like to direct your attention. You'll find the book of Ecclesiastes. So in the Old Testament, you'll find the big books of Psalms, then this big book of Proverbs, uh, then Song of Songs, and then Ecclesiastes. If you're in Isaiah or Jeremiah, turn left. And again, if you're in Psalms or Proverbs, turn right and you'll find Ecclesiastes chapter 8. I'm going to read, we're going to read that whole chapter. We're going to begin uh, with that this morning as we usually do. We never fear or feign from reading scripture. It's the only perfect moment of our service when we read God's word as he speaks to us uh, through it. Uh, I love to sing that song that we just sang. I know that some people, it's not their favorite. I like it. My favorite part of the song is um, the highest note is that word look, right? So we have to, we look for you right right but you have to sing it you got to get it like you know he's coming back we're going to go you know you just got so i like to it's one of my favorites we don't sing it enough but uh ryan is wise in choosing music and i defer to his opinion so uh, ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 1 ecclesiastes 8 verse 1 who is like the wise who knows the explanation of things A a person's wisdom brightens their appearance and changes its... uh, Let me start again. Who is like the wise? (laughs) It'd be nice if it'd be the person who could read. Who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he, the king, will do whatever he pleases. Since the king's word is supreme, who can say to him, What are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter. Though a person may be weighed down by misery, Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? As no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has the power over the time of their death. As no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There's a time when man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then too I saw the wicked buried those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this, this too is meaningless. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked person commits crimes, who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before Him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. There's something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life, because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life that God has given them under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what happens under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. We have many things in common as human beings. Here's something that is true for every single one of us, regardless of your age, your education, your gender, your marital status, your education level, your ethnicity. Here is something that the Bible says about all of us, Your way forward in the world would be better, would be smoother, if you had more wisdom and less foolishness. That's something that's true for every one of us. We all need more wisdom. It doesn't matter who you are. You need more wisdom. And the way forward would be smoother for you if you could reduce the amount of foolishness in your life. Here's the case in point. Uh, Last August, a man named William Kelly called the police in Kennewick, Washington, to report that his 1992 Chevy pickup had been stolen. So the police opened an investigation, and they used some security cameras that were in the area, and sure enough, they found this guy. They saw him get in the car, find the keys that were in the cab of the car. We'll talk about that in a minute. And um, start up the car and drive away. Somebody stole William Kelly's car. They also discovered that the reason that William Kelly had parked the car where he did and left the keys in it so that it could be started quickly is because William Kelly had parked the car there to facilitate a burglary that he was going to commit on a business right next door. So the police arrested him and charged him with burglary. Don't you hate that? (laughs) You leave your truck in the perfect spot for a getaway car and someone has the gall to steal it while you're burglaring. I mean, come on. And then you report it like a good citizen and you get arrested for, for crimes, this crime of theft. William Kelly is not a smart man. Uh, he's not a clever man. Maybe we shouldn't think about this in terms of wisdom and foolishness. This is a not biblical term, but this story is what? Dumb. Uh, but fools are not necessarily dumb people. In fact, a fool can be quite educated. In fact, this is the hallmark of a fool. A fool is something who, uh, someone who knows a lot, but they refuse to apply the knowledge they have to life. There's lots of ways to be a fool. You can be a fool by uh, refusing to listen to the counsel of other people. A fool is someone who is a mocker. A fool treasures empty things. A fool picks unnecessary fights. Foolishness comes in a variety of shades. Here's some biblical language. We all start out life as simple. We're simple. We, we talk sometimes about the innocence of children. Well, the Bible and the, book, uh, the wisdom books the literature of the Bible would say that we're, we're simple. And as you grow, you can continue to be simple. That would be bad. You become naive. You can continue to be simple. You can grow into wisdom or you can harden into a fool. Because you need wisdom, the Bible has given us four books dedicated to those subjects. Two of those books, Proverbs and Song of Songs, most often look at the world as the way God made it. Here's the way things most often work out in the world as it is. So read these books and gain wisdom. And then the other two wisdom books, Ecclesiastes and Job, speak about the world most often in terms of its brokenness. Ecclesiastes repeats this phrase, under the sun, under the sun. Here is life as it is under the sun. If you cut God out, here's what life is like. And then there's this vein that runs through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, this word. So much of life uh, in the world is broken and it's meaningless. It's empty, it's futile, it's vain, it's a mist. Now, a mist can be a beautiful thing. So picture it. You wake up at your cabin by the lake. It's early in the morning, and you go out and you look at the lake and, and the dock, and you sit there, and the lake is very placid. And it's very quiet because it's early in the morning. And because of the temperature of the air and the temperature of the water, there's a mist that's settled over the lake. It's very peaceful. Maybe, maybe the, as the sun start, starts to rise a little better, it gets higher in the sky, the, the rays of the sun come down through the mist and the little droplets of water in the air catch the rays of the sun and turn. The, the air around you is, is, is kind of golden as the mist comes. It can be quite lovely. Mist can be beautiful. But a mist, is, as beautiful as it is like that, won't last very long. Sit on the dock and enjoy it while you can because the sun's going to rise and it's going to burn that mist off and some fool will bring his motorboat out on the lake real soon and disturb the, sound, uh, disturb the stillness of, of the morning. A mist can be beautiful but it, it doesn't last as long. There are moments of life that can be beautiful under the sun but they don't last very long. So enjoy them while you can. Sometimes a mist can be beautiful, but sometimes a mist can be frightening, tragic, confusing. It can settle over a city and make driving dangerous. It can make breathing difficult. The world can seem frightening in the midst of a mist, a vapor. Do you know that according to the Bureau of Standards in Washington, D.C., a fog, a heavy fog that settles in a city, a fog that is seven blocks uh, and covered with fog up to 100 feet, the water vapor that's in the air of that size of a fog that's settled in a city, that water vapor can fit in a glass, one glass. If you take all the water and condense it down, it would be one glass. How is that possible? Well, what you do is you take what's in that glass, and you divide it into 60 billion tiny droplets, and you spread it out, and it will cover that much of a city. And it will blot out almost everything. That hardly seems possible. How is that possible that something so small could create such a confusion? Well, we're not surprised we've read the Bible, haven't we? And the Bible starts with one decision by one man and one woman to eat one piece of fruit in a garden, breaking one of the commands that God gave. And it was one bite, and the consequences for humanity have been devastating. Something so small, so disastrous. In the midst of this foggy world, Ecclesiastes lifts, lifts its voice. And because Ecclesiastes is speaking about life under the sun, it's sometimes a hard book to read. I need a lot of help, if I can be honest with you, when I read the book of Ecclesiastes, because it's confusing, it's difficult. The Bible is pro-wisdom in every way. It wants you to grow in it. It wants you to seek it out. Your life will be better if you have more wisdom. Now we come to chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes, and I wonder, what does this chapter, how does this chapter help us? How does it contribute to this case for wisdom? I should admit, Ecclesiastes 8 is a mixed case. Here are some echoes of things that we have seen before. I want to show you in the text, we're going to walk through it, three things. First, we're going to talk about what wisdom is good for. What does it provide? What does it do? And then secondly, we're going to talk about what wisdom cannot do. As good as it is and all the benefits it brings there are things that wisdom cannot do. We're going to talk about that second and I have a special word for all of the control freaks in the room. So you wait, it's coming. It'll be beautiful. Third, we're going to talk about how the teacher wants us to live in the middle, how, how he counsels us to live in, in the light of the fact that how good wisdom is and what wisdom can't do. So what do we do? How do we survive in this world in the midst of that? So that's where we're going. Let's begin. What's wisdom good for? And there's two things I want you to see in the text. First, wisdom introduces grace. Wisdom introduces grace. It introduces grace into the lives of those who possess it. Now, notice here, as we begin, even in in verse 1, of how um, the, the passage begins with these two questions, two parallel questions. And when there's two lines like this in the Bible, especially in poetry, The second line often explains the first or clarifies the first. So it asks, who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? Or in other words, the teacher, the man who wrote Ecclesiastes, is saying that wisdom, one way to describe wisdom is that wisdom is the explanation of things. The language here is used in the Old Testament to describe the dream interpretations of Joseph and Daniel. We'll talk about them in just a minute. Uh, Joseph and Daniel were able to hear dreams and to explain what they mean. In that sense, they were wise. Uh, This reminds me of those posters that were popular in malls 25 years ago. Do you remember them? So uh, it was that every mall in America had a kiosk with these posters that they would sell. You'd walk by, and, and on the poster you would look. There would just be uh, brightly colored geometric shapes, just weird figures. What you were supposed to do is you are supposed to stand a certain distance away from the poster, and the wise people who were selling these posters would mark a line on the floor. You're supposed to stand back, and if you look at the posters long enough, your eyes, which are always at work to bring order out of chaos, would take that picture and would turn it into this 3D image. Remember those posters? They were really popular. And and you would go to the mall, and there'd be this crowd around these posters, just staring, looking at them. looking. The, first, the most frustrating thing in the world is that the person next to you could see it, and they'd go, oh! And you'd be like, no, it just, I don't get it. I don't get it. Wisdom, according to the Bible, the wise woman can look at life and see how things fit together. See how things, they can understand, they can explain. That's one aspect of wisdom. And that wisdom introduces grace. The wording in my translation, it says, a person's wisdom brightens their face. That word, that translation, that word brightens their face is the same word that's used in one of the great blessings in the Bible. It's used in Numbers chapter 6. Look at Numbers 26, uh, sorry, Numbers 6, verse 23. Tell Aaron and his sons, the text says, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, you've heard this before, I'm sure, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So there it is, Bright faces. Ecclesiastes 8.1, bright faces. A wise person has a bright face and it reminds us of number 6, the shining face of God. The shining face of God is a sign of His favor. It's a sign of His kindness. God is looking at you with approval. He's looking at you with blessing. It is uh, His gladness. Wisdom, biblical wisdom, does the same. Having it is like enjoying the bright face of God. Wisdom introduces grace. It introduces grace into your life. Wisdom introduces grace into the lives of those around you. Look at Proverbs 3.3. What goes along with wisdom? Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Wise people are full of love and faithfulness. Now if this is the standard, think about the difference between cynicism and wisdom. Cynical people with their snide skepticism, often appear to be wise. You might be tempted to think, oh, that guy's wise because he can see through everything. But cynicism is cold. It's brutal. It's angry. It's bitter. Wisdom, on the other hand, is warm and kind and generous. It brings life. It brings hope. It brings peace. It introduces grace. Now that's interesting in light of what the teacher says elsewhere about what wisdom brings. Do you remember from chapter 1 verse 18 what wisdom does? Look at Ecclesiastes 1.18 For with much wisdom comes much sorrow the more knowledge, the more grief. So listen here. Wisdom at the same time introduces to you sorrow and grace. Isn't that interesting? It's as if Your acquaintance with grief that wisdom brings creates room in your life for grace. You look at the world and you see ten thousand reasons for sorrow. Your wisdom does that, and you also see though ten thousand reasons to show kindness and patience and mercy to others. So wisdom produces grace and introduces uh, produces grief and it introduces grace. Do you know anybody like this? His life is marked by this sort of wisdom. I do. They're members of our church. I serve with some of them on on the elder board. Wisdom introduces grace. Now, secondly here in verses 2 through 5, as we walk through the text, the teacher tells us that wisdom helps you survive in a dangerous world. It helps you survive in a dangerous world. Let's talk about politics this morning, shall we? That would be wonderful. We haven't nearly had enough controversy in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's talk about politics. We have to talk about politics because this is about a king, right? The next five verses. It's about a king. It's about a particular type of king. Uh, Here's some practical wisdom about living with an autocratic king. A king who has absolute power, but he's sometimes off. He's not as benevolent as you might hope. He's a little stubborn. He's not a good listener. Do you know anybody with power like that? Anybody at all who has power, who's not a good listener, who's not very benevolent? Hmm. Here's what wisdom teaches you to do in the presence of an unpredictable autocrat. You may not have a king in your life, but I imagine you could use this advice. Um... Maybe your boss or your spouse, First Peter 3, talks about how uh, wives can live with unbelieving husbands. Maybe you have a parent or a teacher who has a bent toward unpredictable autocracy. Listen in. He's, here's some advice for you. Some things he says. Uh, first of all, keep your word. Keep your word. If you promise something, do it. Partly this has to do with your oath to God, You have a higher accountability than to just the king. Your loyalty to the king may be an expression of your loyalty to God. So keep the promises that you've made in mind. Now second here, remember your influence. Remember your influence. Verse 3 says, Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. I recently listened to an interview with Jim Mattis. Jim Mattis was the Secretary of Defense for some time. Uh, he seems like quite an uh, insightful, well-read, intelligent man, Jim Mattis is. Uh, someday after the Trump presidency is over, Jim Mattis is going to talk about why he resigned as Secretary of Defense. has to do, I'm sure, with disagreements of the president over his Middle East policy. And um, it's an honorable thing to do. I don't agree with the direction you want us to take us, so, so I find, uh, he said, the president deserves to have around him advisors who agree with the direction he wants to go. So Jim Mattis resigned. Uh, But notice now, he's gone. He's not there at the Pentagon to advise the president. He has left, and there's no more of his influence. So remember your influence. Don't don't be hasty to leave. If if you've got something to say, you can say it. But if you're gone, you can't. Third here, know your limits. Know your limits. Again, verse 3 says, Do not stand up for a bad cause. In context, the cause is bad because the king doesn't like it. He doesn't like what you're saying. That's why it's a bad cause. It may be a good idea, but if the king doesn't like it, it's a bad cause. You have influence, but it's limited. Text says, He'll do whatever He pleases, so no one can say to Him, What are you doing? You have limited influence at work. You have limited influence in your classroom. Wisdom knows that you have limited influence wherever you are. Number four, timing is important. Timing is important. Verse five, the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. The teacher keeps coming back to this. I haven't brought this up yet, but in chapter three, it's that famous passage. Oh, there's a time for this and a season for everything under the sun, um, I think I talked about that as a Beatles song. Somebody complained, uh, not complained, they corrected me later. It's the birds, the birds, the eagles, I don't know, the falcons. I'm not sure who, but anyway, I think it was the birds, the birds. Uh, I only listen to good Christian music. I don't know about the rest of you. So um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, Oh, Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time, there's a time and season. And he comes back to this over and over again in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6 a time. There's seasons for things. The wise work within that reality. There's a proper time to raise certain issues and concerns. You should know that. This is true in every marriage and in every friendship, isn't it? Certain topics for certain times. The issue comes up. Um, uh, I want to talk about this. Can we talk about it some other time? Just, I, I, I We'll get back to that, but just not right now. Can, can we do that? Can we pause this conversation and come back to it? That's okay to do. There's there's a proper time, proper procedure to talk about things. Wisdom is here to help you navigate these realities. Wisdom will help you survive. Wisdom helped Joseph and Daniel have great influence in the royal courts in which they served. Wisdom will help you navigate these difficult situations that you might be in. If you look at that list, which one of those four do you think you need at this point in time? Which one of those four would be most important for you to increase your positive influence in the circumstances that God calls you to right now? One of them will help you, I'm sure. Now, as we keep moving down through the text here, the teacher makes this rather sudden transition. It starts in verse 6. He's, he's writing about the king and all his power. And he turns his mind toward injustice. There's a king, he's got all the power, and sometimes he doesn't do what's right, and it's frustrating. And the teacher begins to be a little erratic here, his mind goes back and forth, as helpful as wisdom is, now he turns to what wisdom cannot do. There's things that wisdom can't, it can help you survive, it can introduce grace, but it's not omnipotent. Here are things things that wisdom cannot do. Again, I have a list of four. They're in the text. I want to show them to you. First, wisdom cannot relieve every burden. Wisdom cannot relieve every burden. It's true. Verse 6 says, There is a proper time and procedure for every matter. That's true. But a person still may be weighed down by misery. Some of you recognize these miseries are woven into the times and seasons themselves. Wisdom cannot relieve every burden. Remember wisdom sometimes introduces grief and sorrow. It gives you wisdom gives you enough insight to know how hard life under the sun really is. Second, wisdom cannot control the future. Wisdom cannot control the future, verse 7. Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? Verse 8, as no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. As no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. You can't stop the wind. You can't cheat death. You can't be released from the army in the middle of a battle. You can't control the future. At the end of verse 8, the teacher says something I think is so helpful. Wickedness will not release those who practice it. He's getting after here one one of the excuses that we sometimes use. I can't control the future, but if I cut these corners, if I dodge and dip and dive a little bit here around what I know to be right, I can't control the future, but I can at least survive it a little better. If I just make a few compromises here, if I just cut a few corners... In fact, that's the only way forward. It's the only way out for me. Because I can't control the future, I have to compromise here because that's the only way out. And the teacher says, no, 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 no. Wickedness will not help you. It is not the way out. Even wickedness won't give you the control you want in this world. This gives me an opportunity to remind you that if you want to read the book of Ecclesiastes well, You have to take into account what the teacher says about the human condition. Remember the last line of chapter 7 says, This only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. Here's the heart of the problem. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful and beyond cure, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Here's why so much of life under the sun is broken, why the world is so broken, because we human beings are suffused. So we are soaked in this wickedness, and it comes out all the time. And we're pretty good about trying to deny that truth. Some of us want to protest on the one hand. Some of us want to say, come on, I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm not as, I can't be as bad as the Bible says, right? But then verse 11 says something about this particular shade of evil. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. So the first time you blow through that stop sign, you maybe were a little nervous and were looking for cops. The second time you blew through that stop sign, it, you, you went a little faster. And the third time, the four, you just totally forgot about it at all, until the cop finds you police officer pulls you over and gives you a ticket, then you'll be careful. But when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. You really are that bad. You, you, you rationalize the things that you do. Uh, you take advantage of, of opportunities when, when, when you're not going to get caught. I mean, it, is it really a crime if you don't get caught? Right, right. Hmm. We human beings are depraved, we rationalize, we excuse, we exploit opportunities. We, we deny this truth that the teacher is after. There's another way to deny this truth. It's, it's actually the religious way to downplay our true condition. This is the very pious way to do it. Some of you are so very discouraged about the sin you see in your own life still. You haven't killed anyone uh, recently, but you're still very proud And you're still full of envy and covetousness and lust and laziness. And you see it in your life and it makes you angry at yourself. Or you get depressed and you get discouraged. You've been a Christian for a long time. You should not have this problem. What is wrong with you that you keep doing these things? You say these things to yourself all the time. If you were a real Christian, you wouldn't have these problems. The reason that you're so shocked at yourself and the reason that you're so angry and so discouraged is because somewhere inside your heart you don't believe that you're as bad as the Bible says you are. You should be better. You should be better. You should be able to do better. And you're angry that you're not because you believe you're a better person than you actually are. And you don't believe what the Bible says about your true condition. See, that attitude is a denial of what the Bible says, what the teacher says about the human condition. Remember this, brothers and sisters, the only way that any of us are acceptable to God, the only way that any of us will ever be forgiven is because of grace. Take the worst criminal that you can imagine... And compare that person to the most faithful Christian you know, the person, the dear saint who's been walking with Jesus for 50 years. Compare the two. How are they going to enter God's presence? How is it possible for either of them to be forgiven? Grace. Grace, always grace, still grace, even for this dear saint. What, we both, what both of those people need is the grace that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for our sins. You will never truly treasure the work of the Lord Jesus Christ for us when he offered himself on the cross. You will never truly treasure that work unless you come to terms with what the teacher says. I really am that bad. And because I really am that bad, I really need a savior. Don't be slow, to embrace this and what the Bible teaches. This is good news. God knows your condition. Don't deny it. He knows truly everything about you. He truly knows your condition. He has the perspective to know how bad and how odious and how terrible it is. And you know what he says? He knows what is true about you and he loves you anyway and sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. You will not truly appreciate the wonder of the grace of the Lord Jesus until you come to terms with and embrace what the teacher says about how much you need to be saved. Now I suppose we've gotten a bit far afield. Let's continue on our list, shall we? Here's the third thing wisdom cannot do. Wisdom cannot right every wrong. It cannot right every wrong. He's struggling again in this passage with why bad things happen to good people. Verse 9. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There's a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Verse uh, 10. Then too I saw the wicked buried. That's how you're supposed to read this. Buried. The wicked are buried. Those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. See, in this culture, burial is a sign of honor. It's a sign of respect. It's very important. If you're not buried, it's a great dishonor. And, and he's saying, wicked people, wicked people, hip, hypocrites, religious hypocrites, they're buried on the day of their death. Everybody talks about them like they're the best people ever. And that's awful. Because they were wicked. They shouldn't be honored that way. That's not right. Verse 14, there's something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This (coughs) This too, I say, is meaningless. You would think the teacher would have a solution for this. But he doesn't. All he can do is point it out because wisdom is limited. Wisdom cannot right every wrong. Here's a fourth way that wisdom is limited. It cannot answer every question. It cannot answer every question. Verse 16. Let's read verses 16 and 17 again. When I applied my mind to know wisdom, to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. Wisdom is really good. It's really good. It introduces grace. It helps you survive. But there are questions that even wisdom cannot answer. And notice why verse 16, actually verse 17, right at the beginning, it says, this is the work of God. This is what God has done. This is a deliberate choice that God himself has made. God has put you in situations you cannot understand with problems you cannot fix. Now, why would God do that? Why would God put you in situations you cannot understand and fix and, and give you problems that you cannot fix? Why would He do that? Let me tell you, I don't know. Haven't you been paying attention? There are questions that wisdom can't answer. Right? God does this all the time. This is something that God does, and He does it all the time. I listened last week to a sermon by D.A. Carson about Joseph in Genesis, his great story about Joseph. You know Joseph. Joseph was the oldest son of his father's favorite wife, and because he was the oldest son of his father's favorite wife, he was also his favorite son. Favoritism is terrible for a family. Joseph's brothers, because they're jealous of him, envious, they sell him into slavery. He goes down into slavery. In the providence of God, he comes to preeminence in his home in which he is a slave, the home in which he is a slave. Then he's accused wrongly of committing a crime and he's sent to prison. He rises to preeminence in prison and he's left there to rot for a couple of years. Why would God do that? Carson said, God sometimes blesses his people in broken places. Rather than blessing them by leading them to a place of ease and comfort, he blesses them in the midst of suffering. There are parts of your life, there are parts of every life, God has put you there. He has put you in situations you cannot understand and given you problems that you cannot fix. All you can do is obey him to the best of your ability in that broken place. This is bad news for control freaks in the room. You know who you are. I was talking about this with Steve Henson this week. We were talking about this. This is sometimes how people respond to... uh, worries or fear, or sometimes this is how people respond to past abuse. They try to create security by imposing control. If I control my life perfectly, I will not have to worry about my worries or my fears and I'll be safe from every threat, Steve said. You can do that if you make your life as small as a postage stamp. To enjoy that illusion of control, you have to make your life very small, make it very small so that you have... In your life, only the things that you can control perfectly. But life has a way of breaking in, a terrible way of breaking in. This is bad news for control freaks. Maybe it's good news, though, isn't it? Maybe it means you can stop trying to control your life. It's just an illusion anyway. Maybe you can find some other way to invest your time and your energy. God does some of his best work in the midst of a messy life. God does good work in situations that you cannot control with problems you cannot fix. Now, I've been hinting, even by saying this, at what comes next. Let's talk about how to live in the middle. Let's finish by talking about that, right? So wisdom is good. It does good things. It's limited. There's things it can't do. So how do we live in the middle? And again, the teacher's going to counsel us two ways. First, he's going to say, enjoy life. Enjoy life. We've seen what he says in verse 15 before. Look what he says in Ecclesiastes 8.15. So I commend the enjoyment of life. Because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of life, the life that God has given them under the sun. You can choose, if you want, dear friends, to spend your time complaining and trying to fix things and trying to make wisdom do what wisdom cannot do, or you can receive from God the blessings that He has intended. You're going to have toil You are going to have toil in this life under the sun. There are going to be hard things, but you may receive joy too. Do you notice um, how God does both? God puts you in situations you cannot control and he provides the joy in the midst of it. Have you ever lived in a house undergoing renovations? It's kind of a pain. It's great because your house is going to look good when you're done. But it's, it's a major inconvenience. I remember a, a few years ago, we remodeled the kitchen in the parsonage. I'm very grateful for the work that was done in the parsonage. Um, it's really hard to live in a house without a kitchen. So we um, took everything out in the kitchen. We found another spot, uh, and we, had, we, we had got a table, and we put everything that belonged in the kitchen on or under the table so everything was there the toaster the cereal the bread the spices the canned goods the paper plates and the cups and the napkins and underneath it was uh pots and pans and and everything that goes in your kitchen was just in this one area it was so easy to keep neat and clean (laughs) we had a sink which was good um we had a microwave we had a crock pot and we had a grill and for a month that's the way we lived and and um the table didn't fit, the kitchen table didn't fit in this room. So it was out in the other room. Uh, since it was over carpet and we still had a child in a high chair, there was a sheet of plastic underneath our table to protect the carpet. So the table was there in the plastic and, and the chairs. And, you know, that's impossible to keep that plastic nice and flat if you're moving chairs over it. And, and crumbs, forget it, they're everywhere, right? It's kind of a pain. Um, what do you do under those conditions? dinner time. Do you spread a tablecloth and put candles on the table and get the fine china out? In the midst of all this mess, is that even possible? Is that even something that you can comprehend doing? This is what the teacher suggests that you do. You're going to have toil. Get out the tablecloth anyway. Get out the candles and the china. This, so much of your life this is, this is true in. Your marriage is not perfect. Can, can you enjoy moments of joy that are there in the midst of your imperfect marriage? Or your career? Toil, toil, toil. Everybody, we, all of us could complain about our jobs, except me, I have a great job. All of us... Could complain about things that we don't like about our jobs and how awful it is, and the toil and the labor that's involved in it. Is there any joy there? How about church? Every church has problems they cannot fix. How well are we going to sing the next time that the slides aren't right, and there's some weird key change, and uh, the tempo is odd, and I can't figure out when to start? Can you sing with joy into those circumstances? Can you do that? Or are you so distracted by those little things that you can't say? The teacher is talking a little bit like Paul in Philippians 4, isn't he? Paul is talking in Philippians 4 about contentment. See, contentment does not come because you have a perfect life. Some of you think that if you just get life right, if you just can fix everything, then you'll be content. That's not what contentment is. Contentment is... Uh, This, uh, it's, it's not born of a perfect life. Contentment is born from receiving the good gifts that God gives for us to enjoy life even in this broken world. That's what contentment is. If you're waiting for your perfect life to be content, you will never be content. So he says, enjoy life. Now here's something else that he says. Teacher advises in the middle. Look through the lens of faith. He says, look through the lens of faith. Verse 12 is somewhat unusual in the book of Ecclesiastes. Up to this point in time, the teacher has been speaking about what he's seen. Over and over again, we've read this phrase, I looked at life and this is what I saw. I looked at life and this is what I saw. Over and over again, he says that. But here in verse 12, he speaks in terms of what he knows. That's different. Um, so uh, verse 12, uh, although a wicked person who commits 100 crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God who are reverent before him. He says, I know. He doesn't say, I have seen. He says, I know. And you want to say, teacher, how do you know that? Where does this confidence come from? The teacher says it actually makes a difference, not in ways that he can document, but he knows that how you live does make a difference. It actually matters. It is a better choice to fear God. This is a response the teachers making of faith. God will make this right. I know that it will go better for those who fear God, who are reverent before him. I know that. Teacher, how do you you know that? How do you envision this working out? He seems to be struggling here. I see this, but I know this. Thankfully, as we pick up the book of Ecclesiastes, we have help from the New Testament. See, the New Testament helps us. It has more information. It has greater clarity. It, uh, it speaks to these issues um, uh, with greater detail than the teacher had. Most of the confidence the teacher has about these things working out will work themselves out, not necessarily even in this life, but in the age to come. That's what Jesus taught us. This is how he spoke about it. Look from John chapter 5, verse 28. Jesus is speaking about the authority he has uh, to raise the dead and to judge Verse 28, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their grades will hear my voice, Jesus is speaking about himself, and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing, I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself but him who sent me. He's the one who will call the dead to life, Jesus is. He's the one who will issue the verdict, our confidence in his, is in Him. It's always in Him, isn't it? We come back to this again. Our confidence is in Him when we enter the faith and trust in Him as our Savior. Our confidence is in Him because we ensure that, that um, reverence for God matters. We, our confidence is in Him when we finish the faith because of His promises that He's the coming judge. Wisdom is limited in this world, the Lord Jesus is not. And when he comes, he won't have any of these questions or problems or illusions that we have living life under the sun. In him, Paul said, are hidden all the treasures and mysteries of the wisdom of God. Now if the teacher, with, with his less insight than we have into the brokenness of this world, if he can rest in God's rightness, God's goodness, God's justice, if He can rest in that, can you? This is how we live in the middle between where wisdom works and where wisdom fails. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we come before you today and we are thankful to you. We are thankful to you that you are the one who will speak and the dead will come to life. You did it with Lazarus. You did it with that little girl. You did it with that widow's son. They were on their way to bury him, and you raised him from the dead. You you have that power. We pray today that you would increase our confidence in you and your power. Lord, in your word, you have advised us how to live, and yet even our own wisdom, the best we can do sometimes falls short. So help us to speak in terms of what we know, what we believe, because you are utterly trustworthy. Thank you, Father, for your honesty in your word about the questions that we don't have answers to and the struggles we face. I thank you that you gave us Words to instruct us, to, to remind us of that. Because we confess that some of us, when we have unanswered questions, we feel weird, we feel strange, we feel uh, like outsiders if we have unanswered questions. But you yourself mentioned the possibility that this will be true in all of our lives. While we walk through this life under the sun in this broken world, Remind us of the Lord Jesus who came in to rescue us, whose word is sure. Help us to trust you and to look to you, have confidence in you, when our wisdom fails us. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. Let's respond.